Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I am Sergeant McConnell, and tonight I am joined by Sergeant Anderson. Hello, everyone. And Sergeant Paul. How's it going? This week's topic is the evolution of close air support. And to start us, to start us off with that, we have Sergeant Anderson. All right. Thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So close air support. For anyone who doesn't know what close air support is, it is basically any aircraft that's operation is uh, supporting troops on the ground. So it's fairly, it's fairly straightforward. Um, aircraft fly down, they bomb enemy targets, they protect friendly targets, and they pretty much do anything that is needed by the troops on the ground. So first, let's start off. Um, the first time that close air support or CAS, as we might be uh, abbreviating a bit tonight, was used. So the First World War was the first time in history that close air support was used. This seems pretty straightforward as, um, as World War I was like the first time airplanes were really used in combat. So this is when a lot of the rules were sort of figured out. So um, the first aircraft ever to carry out a close air support strike was the FE-2B, which was uh, an aircraft in the Royal Flying Corps, which was the predecessor to the Royal Air Force. So it was a British aircraft. Uh, it wasn't really designed to actually carry out these close air support missions, but in those early days of World War I, no, most aircraft were not designed to do that. Um, so let's take a look here. Now, during World War I, the effectiveness of close air support was really limited by the technology of the time. So a major component that is very important with close air support is their ability to support the troops on the ground. That is literally the entire point of close air support. Now, the problem was in World War I, they really didn't have radios that could be installed in aircraft. So they had to rely either on pre-planning their attacks or using hand signals, signal flares, or signal flags, something of that nature. Now, as I just said, most of the aircraft that use these uh, close air support roles or that fill these close air support roles were not actually designed for the job. They were just fighters that had been adapted to do it. The first aircraft that was designed specifically to fly close air support was the Junkers JI, or sorry, the Junkers JI, which was a German aircraft. I have to admit, I forget that sometimes in German that J's are supposed to be pronounced as Y's. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was the Junkers JI. Now, what was also interesting about this aircraft was that it was one of the first all-metal constructed aircraft. So before this, it was um, mainly metal over uh, metal, and then they'd have fabric stretched out over it, or wood with fabric stretched out over it. This is one of the very first aircraft that used all metal on it. So it was definitely a lot more armored than the other aircraft. Like the troops on the ground, they could be taking pot shots at, um, at other close air support aircraft. But this one, if you hit it with a small arms fire or pretty much any small bullet, it really wouldn't do too much. Whereas uh, something made out of fabric and wood, yeah, you shoot that with a rifle caliber round, that's going to go straight through and cause a lot of damage. Um, so next, let's talk a little bit about the interwar period, because this is really when close air sports started to take off. That pun was not intended, but I'm very happy I got it in there. Uh, right, so between this period, close air sport was built on heavily in countries like Germany. So they developed aircraft like the Ju-87, the Ju-88, and the HE-111, which were used mainly for dive bombing and tactical bombing. So the Ju-87, which I think we all know as the Stuka, was very well known for its dive sirens. 
Uh, Sergeant Paul, I think you know quite a bit about this too, the dive sirens on those aircraft. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit more about them? Right. The sirens on the Stuka, memory serves correct. They were these, they had these special air intake valves that would produce almost a kind of whistling sound. And it's pretty easy to recognize because just about every movie to ever exist post-World War II has used that as a plane falling. Yeah, you can, you can seriously find that in any movie ever. That is like the sound effect of a plane going by. But what was interesting about these sirens was that they're actually specifically designed for psychological warfare. So there really wasn't any like actual practical function for them. They really didn't um, make the aircraft perform better. They really didn't uh, increase the effectiveness of the weapons, but they were designed specifically for psychological warfare because that sound is instantly recognizable and it is absolutely terrifying, especially to the soldiers on the ground who would know what it meant. In fact, cases of PTSD were quite common among soldiers who heard sirens similar to that uh, after the war or even when they got home during the war. But that was one of the very first examples of aerial uh, psychological warfare. Now, the Ju-88 and the Hu-111 were actually designed mainly for tactical bombing, but because of the uh, weak industrial output of uh, Germany during World War II. Now, I should clarify, this wasn't like they were bad at producing things. They just didn't have enough raw materials to support their industry. So because of this, uh, they really didn't have any aircraft they could make for dedicated roles. So pretty much everything in the German Air Force did a little bit of everything. Or they had to they sort of had to cover multiple different roles. So the HE-111, for example, and the Ju-88, they had to cover both strategic bombing, tactical bombing, and a little bit of close air support. But really, the main aircraft you saw in uh, the German Luftwaffe in the interwar periods in the early war was the Ju-87 Stuka. And it was for a great reason. It was a great tank buster. And it was overall a very effective close air support aircraft. Now, at the outbreak of World War II, the German Luftwaffe was one of the only air forces in the world which commonly used close air support. In fact, at the start of the war, either the French or British military had a large number of dedicated close air support aircraft. So during this time, they were mainly using fighters that they converted into close air support, or they were using heavier tactical bombers, like uh, in the British, they used the Bristol Blenheim. That was mainly a tactical bomber, but they converted it to do close air support, which was something it wasn't really suited to as much as tactical bombing. So it was sort of a similar situation to the Ju-88 or the HE-111. Um, now, the Germans, they used this advantage with great effect, and they used their aircraft a lot differently than the British or the French. They mainly used theirs in support of their Blitzkrieg tactics. So the British and the French, they were mainly focused on defensive fighting, whereas the Germans were mainly focused on their offensive uh, attacks. They were mainly focused around advancing and conquering other nations. So in the early years of their war, um, aircraft like the Ju-87, they weren't specifically designed to be their own independent branch. I mean, they were, they were definitely a, an independent branch, the Luftwaffe, but they were designed mainly to be flying artillery to support the army. And that was, that was very much a uh, choice of doctrine for the Germans. They centered everything around their panzers and around their mobile infantry. And you can really see how this doctrine paid off with um, the British and the French focusing mainly on tactical bombing and strategic bombing, and the Germans focusing mainly on close air support. Uh, and that, that's also part of the reason why they were able to sweep through these countries so quickly. 
their troops on the battlefield were able to quickly call for support anytime they needed it, and it would be there almost instantly. Now, another interesting thing to note was that during this war, uh, ground forces and air forces were able to be more coordinated due to the invention and the now widespread use of radio. So as I said, in World War I, they mainly had to rely on either pre-planning their attacks or using signal flares or signal flags, something like that. In this war, every pilot had a radio and almost every ground unit had a radio, which meant they were able to integrate their strategy much more effectively. And this is going to be a major game changer. Uh, now, so during the war, the German Luftwaffe also began experimenting with direct support aircraft in addition to their dive and tactical bombers. So a direct support aircraft is more closely, like it more closely resembles a modern aircraft such as the A-10 Warthog. Um, so direct support means it flies in fairly level and it dips its nose and it dives in low and attacks the enemy. A dive bomber starts off pretty high and dives down and that way it avoids a lot of fire when it's coming in. Whereas uh, a direct support aircraft, it's typically a lot more effective. So a pretty good example of this is the German HS-129. Now this was built between 1940 and 1944. And this thing was absolutely insane. In fact, it was nicknamed by some Hitler's A-10 because that's essentially what it was. It was the very first A-10-like aircraft we saw in history. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, the HS-129 on some variants actually had a 75 millimeter gun. Now, um, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it is essentially the same size gun that they had on most Sherman tanks. So this thing essentially had a tank gun in it instead of a plane gun. Pretty sure T-34s also use 75 millimeter guns. Exactly. And um, I want to clarify once again, I remember I talked about this a little while back, but for anyone who doesn't know how guns are measured, when we say 75 millimeters, we're not talking about the length, we are talking about the width. So go grab a ruler and measure out 75 millimeters and imagine a gun that wide. It is absolutely insane. And that is why this thing was such an effective tank busting aircraft, uh, because this gun was larger than quite a lot of the guns you would find on most light tanks and even some medium tanks at the time. It was, it was basically a flying tank. Exactly. It was a flying tank. Uh, and again, that's why people call it uh, Hitler's A-10, because uh, like, that's essentially what we call the A-10 now. It's a flying tank. This is one of the very first airplanes that was called the flying tank. Now, it also had a lot of armor, like it had uh, uh, an armor belt. I know this isn't really going to sound too thick, but it had um, like a very light armor belt around the nose of the aircraft. So it was nowhere near what a tank would have, obviously, because it'd still need to be light enough to fly. But it was much more armored than a lot of its counterparts. In addition to that, it used bulletproof glass, which might sound strange, but it was actually pretty rare to see in most aircraft at the time because of how expensive it was. But this thing actually used bulletproof glass. So yeah, it was essentially a flying tank. Now, during this time, the Allies got in on this uh, direct support action too. So we saw things like the IL-2 from the Soviet Red Air Force, the Mosquito from the British RAF, and the P-47 Thunderbolt from uh, the United States. Now, quick interesting fact is that the P-47 Thunderbolt was actually the namesake for the A-10 Thunderbolt II. Um, 
And just quickly, if anyone wants to learn more about the A-10 Thunderbolt II, we actually made an episode a while back that was called Legendary Aircraft, where we talked a little bit about uh, the A-10 Thunderbolt along with two other planes. So if you're interested in hearing more about that absolute beast of an airplane, go listen to that. I'm sure you would enjoy it. Now, with all that said, let's talk a little bit about after the war. So following the Second World War, close air support began to be phased out in favor of nuclear-capable strategic bombers. Now, normally on this show, we don't talk too much about politics, but I'm going to be honest, this is one of my main criticisms of, uh, of President Harry Truman. Uh, after World War II, he cut the military's budget by a massive amount and sent a lot of that funding straight to the Air Force. But instead of distributing it equally within the Air Force between the fighters, the attack aircraft, things like that, he gave it straight to nuclear-capable strategic bombers. The problem with that, though, is you can't really use a nuke in regular war. Like, um, once the Soviets had their nukes, we couldn't use nukes. Again, I'm saying we, but I really mean the United States. But yeah, we couldn't use nukes once the Soviets had their nukes. It was the concept of MAD or mutually assured destruction. It essentially meant if we nuked them, they would nuke us and the whole world would end. That is why conventional militaries are still very important. I hear from a lot of people, why do we even need a military anymore? We have nukes. The reason we need a military is because we can't just go around nuking people. And I think that was a very hard lesson for Harry Truman to learn. And I think he only learned that and he only really started reversing his policy during the Korean War, which we're about to talk about very briefly now. So during the uh, Korean War, um, they, they really didn't have many aircraft they could use for close air support. The U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, they were mainly stuck using old leftovers from World War II, such as the F-4U Corsair. Now, don't get me wrong, the Corsair was an absolutely amazing plane. But at this point, it was about 10 years old and it was fighting in a war in conditions it wasn't designed for at all. It was designed for fighting the Japanese in the Pacific. It was now fighting the uh, North Koreans and the Soviets who had fighter jets at this point. So it was very outmatched and outdated by this point, And they really needed to update. Um, so during this time, the U.S. Air Force established new positions such as the Forward Air Controller and the Air Liaison Officer who worked on the ground alongside soldiers. Now, the reason this was important was because it really helped the Air Force understand why close air support was, um, why it was vital, why it protected troops on the ground, and it also really helped them improve the accuracy of these strikes. So when they had Air Force personnel working on the ground who understood what the pilots needed to do, and they were learning what the soldiers needed from them, it was, it was able to uh, lead to much more coordination between the Air Force and the Army. So that was one major advantage that came out of this. Uh, so next, let's talk a little bit about the Vietnam War. So again, this is uh, one that we talked about a while back in a different episode. Uh, this one, I think, was just called uh, Strategy During the Vietnam War or the Vietnam War, something along those lines. But if you'd like to learn more, go listen to that episode, because right now we're just going to give a very brief overview of what the close air support was used for during this war. So in addition to fixed wing close air support, the U.S. Army began experimenting with the concept of helicopter gunships. So this is one of the first wars where helicopters were really used to great effect. You saw them a little bit in uh, the Korean War, but they really weren't used 
to their full potential. They were used mainly just to transport troops and to carry out the wounded. In this war, they started using them as attack aircraft and uh, for artillery spotters and things like that. Um, now, in addition to these uh, helicopters, they also used fighter bombers such as the F-4 Phantom. Now, this was a phenomenal aircraft. There were quite a few different variants. There were ones for the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. Uh, there were also ones that were dedicated directly for close air support. So the F-4 Phantom was really a jack of all trades, and it did this very well. I've heard a lot of people comparing the F-4 Phantom to the F-35. I think for the time, the F-4 Phantom was probably uh, a bit better. It was, it definitely could perform its tasks at a higher capacity than the F-35 can now. Like the F-35, I've heard a lot of people say it's a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Uh, I think that's true in some extent. I think they were trying to go for too much with it and they sort of missed the mark. But if you want a very good example of how that was done, like how that was done very well, take a look at the F-4 Phantom. It was absolutely a beautiful aircraft and it had a beautiful service record. Um, now, during this time, we also saw uh, fixed wing gunships such as the AC-130 and even converted C-47s. Um, now, what's interesting about these was that uh, they were left over from World War II, which at this point was 20, even 30 years ago near the end. But they were actually able to retrofit a lot of the C-47s with miniguns and with uh, very high rate of fire machine guns. And they were able to turn them into uh, these big gunships that could easily take out a lot of the Viet Cong. So I think Vietnam was sort of a turning point for close air support. It's sort of the time when we started seeing the modern procedures and the modern uh, technologies and the modern um, sort of strategies that we use now, that's when they were sort of developed. Right. Especially since with the AC-130, this was the first time people started providing close air support through strapping 105 millimeter howitzers to planes. Yeah, exactly. So the AC-130, it was an absolute beast of an airplane. I remember when we said before um, that the HS-129 was essentially a tank of an airplane. This thing was essentially like um, a battleship of an airplane. It was absolutely massive. It had massive guns and it was, it was absolutely insane and it was crazy effective. But it was during this war that we really saw that uh, technology and that strategy being developed. Now, in the years following Vietnam, the role of close air support has reached near perfection with aircraft such as the A-10 Warthog. So again, if you want to learn more, I talked a little bit uh, before about another episode you can go watch. I highly recommend it. But the A-10 Warthog is probably one of the most effective close air support aircraft in the world, if not the most effective. I, I think I would be willing to go that far and say it is the most effective. Um, so it's really reached its sort of peak performance, its peak perfection now, close air support, because troops on the ground that can call for support and they'll have it within just a few short minutes. This thing is known as the guardian angel by soldiers uh, all across the US military because they know they can rely on it for support nearly instantly. Now, despite that, some have said that the introduction of the F-35 could threaten this reputation. And just a few minutes ago, we were talking about it. We said, yeah, the F-35, they were trying to do a little bit too much with it. Uh, right. Sorry. 
Paul, I see you unmuted yourself there. Do you want to weigh in a little bit on this? Because I know we've talked about this briefly before. Right. Now, right. You said the, the A10 is one of, if not the best, close air support systems on a planet, which I agree with. However, there is certainly another contender in the U.S. military that comes pretty close. The AH-64 Apache. Oh, the, the helicopter, right? Yeah, yeah, right. American, their main attack helicopter, as well as Russian Heinz, come very close to the A-10 in terms of sheer firepower. There's also, there's also the advantage that helicopters can loiter around the targeted area for multiple minutes on end. Yeah, for sure. They can definitely loiter around an area, but I think that might be offset a little bit by the fact that the A-10 can actually go a lot quicker. Like, uh, I'd say it's a lot more flexible than a helicopter. Is A helicopter, you sort of deploy to sort of safeguard one area, or you want to sort of keep it around one unit as their, like, personal protection. Um, with an A-10, you can sort of have it flying up a little bit higher, and then it can just sort of wait there and you can sort of send it wherever it's needed. It's a lot more flexible than a helicopter would be. And I think that's mainly true for most fixed wing aircraft. They're just a lot more flexible than a helicopter is. Like a helicopter is good for a lot of scenarios. And I think close air support, they're very good if you're in one concentrated area. But I think in maybe the situation of Afghanistan where things are a lot more spread out and you really don't know where threats going to be coming from, it's best to have that flexibility where you can just have the aircraft flying up high waiting for its orders to come in. Right, right. All right, so right back to the F-35. I think it's still a pretty good aircraft. I think, um, I think for sure Canada needs it. We definitely need to update our Air Force. And I think that would be an absolute great addition to our fleet. But again, I think the designers of it were trying to go for a little bit too much there when they tried to make it sort of the replacement for every single aircraft currently serving in the US military. I think that's a little bit too ambitious, um, especially because they were designing it for all three branches at the same time. They were designing it for the Marines, the Air Force, and the Navy. The problem is each one of those branches has a different requirement for what they need their aircraft to do. And when you start designing something that tries to fit all their needs, you're gonna not only have unnecessary uh, aspects, but it's going to really drive up the cost. The F-35 is one of the most expensive projects undertaken by the U.S. military in the last few years. And the fact is, it's just not effective as a lot of the aircraft they currently have. Right. Not to mention a good amount of that cost was done by, the, by one of the requirements of the Marines, which is that the F-35 needs to have VTOL capabilities. Yeah, exactly. And see, that brings us right back to the point where um, these different branches, they shouldn't be designing one aircraft to try and meet all the branches needs because the Air Force and the Navy, they really don't need an aircraft that can uh, take off vertical. They, they need an aircraft for the Navy. They need an aircraft that can take off and land on carriers. In the Air Force, they need um, an aircraft probably that has longer range and better firepower. So yeah, when you try and squeeze everything into one aircraft, um, it ends up being a lot less effective. Now, again, the F-35 is a wonderful aircraft, and I think it would be a great addition to any fleet. The thing is, though, I don't think it's going to live up to everything it's been said to do. Now, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Gigs podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.